0: The Rural Health Voice, Episode 9, Rural Health Clinics. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What's the difference between a clinic in a rural community and an official rural health clinic, Nathan Baugh? Director of Government Affairs at the National Association of Rural Health Clinics, joined me to talk about these clinics, their benefits and challenges. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you. So you are, I've got the Director of Government Affairs with the National Association of Rural Health Clinics. What, what is that organization?
1: The National Association of Rural Health Clinics is the only national association for rural health clinics, um, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, it was created by my boss, my current boss, Bill Finnerfrock. Um, oh, he's going to kill me for not knowing the exact date or exact <laughs> year, but it's the it was the early 90s or maybe late, I think it was actually late 80s. Um, and he he recognized the need for uh, a rural health clinic a national rural health clinic association because he um did a lot of work with the physician assistants the american academy academy i believe of physician assistants and um he was getting questions about rural health clinics in his role at, at uh with the PAs. And so he and a, a gentleman by the name of Ron Nelson from Michigan who is a, a PA up there, he had his own rural health clinic, uh, sat down and they they uh you know it's one of those Sort of written on a napkin, stories. They sort of sketched out the idea of what a r- national rural health clinic association would look like, and and that's kind of how we uh, that's how we were born.
0: So I'm assuming most of your members are indeed rural health clinics. Are there other types of members?
1: There, we have a few consultants, um, but yeah, there, I, I guess. And then the other. Potentially members would be like critical access hospitals or other hospitals that own rural health clinics. But yeah, the vast majority are rural health clinics.
0: Now, when I work with, you know, elected officials and policymakers and, and other stakeholders, something that I'm constantly fighting is people don't know what a rural health clinic is. Can you describe that for us?
1: Absolutely. This is actually one of our biggest uh, sort of PR struggles that we go through, Um, at its most fundamental level, a rural health clinic is a primary care office, clinician's office, um, in a rural underserved area, right? That's the most basic um, description I can give. But what we often get confused for is just that sometimes people say clinic or clinics, and... You know, that can just be any, that's basically just another way of saying office. But more often we get confused with health centers or community health centers, which is a formal sort of reference to the FQHC program, the Federally Qualified Health Center program, which we are sister or cousin safety net provider programs, but we are definitely not the same thing. And that is one of the sort of um, things that we try to clarify whenever we're having conversations with uh, elected officials and and other folks at rural health clinics and federally qualified health centers are not the same thing. And saying health center, those two words Health center, that's not an umbrella term, uh, especially legally, that is only in reference to FQHC. So sometimes we run into the issue where uh, folks think that a lot of grant funds or other funds are available for rural health clinics because the health centers get it, and that's all everybody. No, health centers is just FQHCs.
0: So yeah, what I often hear is that people tend to think of rural health clinics are just either a community health center that happens to be in a rural health area, or any clinic that happens to be a rural health area. But it's actually a very separate designation under, say, Medicare. Correct?
1: One hundred percent correct. Yeah, just being a rural uh, clinician office does not mean you're a rural health clinic. You're you're a rural I would, I, we call those offices fee-for-service offices or FFS offices because that's how they get paid by Medicare. Um, But yes, you're 100% correct. In fact, you have to really be up and running as a a fee-for-service office before you can even apply to become a rural health clinic. So uh, those exist, but those would just be rural fee-for-service offices, not rural health clinics.
0: And unlike FQHCs, community health centers, rural health clinics can be either for-profit or non-profit.
1: Again, you, you, you know the program well. That is correct. That's one of the big... There's a lot of similarities, and there are also a lot of intricate differences between FQHCs and RHCs, which only makes our PR problem harder because there are instances within the law that RHCs and FQHCs you know, hold hands. And Medicaid is perhaps the best example, at least federally. Um, They're treated almost exactly the same. Um, But there are all these little intricacies, and that's one of them, that um, a rural health clinic can be for-profit, which means it can be owned by a hospital. Um, You don't really have a lot of FQHCs. I don't think you have any. There might be a few outliers, but you don't have any FQHCs that are owned by hospitals.
0: So what's what's sort of the benefit of having a separate designation for those rural health clinics? Why not just have FQHCs everywhere? What's what's the point of the Rural Health Clinic program?
1: Well, the Rural Health Clinic program uh, precedes the FQHC program. So uh, we were around first. There are um, a number of benefits. Uh, On Medicaid, you're looking at very similar rules in almost every state. So um, Medicaid for FQHCs, RECs, very similar. Now, the benefit on the Medicare side is that we get cost-based reimbursement, where FQHCs used to get cost-based reimbursement, but but now they get a a PPS, Prospective Payment System. Uh, from Medicare, and they have different uh, reimbursement rules and things like that that go along with that PPS system. In the rural health clinics, we have a system-based and um, cost-based reimbursement. So if any of your listeners are familiar with the way cause or critical access hospitals are reimbursed, they have to file a cost report, and then they get a uh, 101% of their costs, and then there's a 2% sequester, but that's a whole different subject. But essentially, they get a payment based on what that cost report says their costs are, and rural health clinics are very similar. So in in many cases, that can be advantageous for the rural health clinic to be reimbursed that way from Medicare. Um, And there's a whole, we have a cap, which is one of our big issues that applies to some rural health clinics, but not others. And that cap is pretty low uh, currently. And it's one of our, it has been and is absolutely our number one issue that we're trying to fix is to get that cap raised so that these clinics can be reimbursed their, their costs.
0: So if the clinics aren't being reimbursed, the cost. Do some of them have, you know, issues staying fiscally stable? Uh,
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the trends that we've seen in the rural health clinics program is that the clinics that are subject to, we call it a cap, um, have made it so that they're not subject to a cap. And basically you do that by selling to a hospital with less than 50 beds. So the 50 bed is the cutoff mark. And if you're owned by a large hospital, more than 50 beds, or you're what we call an independent or freestanding rural health clinic, you're subject to the cap. And uh, in the 90s, and it was almost 100% freestanding, clinician-owned rural health clinics. And now we're, I believe, we're almost two-thirds owned by hospitals, with the vast majority of those owned by hospitals being hospitals with less than 50 beds. So we've seen this sh- 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 sort of shift so that the payment is uh, consistent with the rural health clinic's costs and you don't have this arbitrary cap um, placed on you. With that said, it's our number one goal to get that cap dramatically increased so that that Freestanding model, and if you're a large hospital, those uh, those models don't just die, um, and so that's that's been our sort of leg. That's our legislative push right now.
0: So you're talking about you know you we want to increase the cap so that this model doesn't die, so they can stay fiscally stable. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, we want the rural health clinics to thrive what What's the benefit to the overall community to have that rural health clinic there in the community providing
1: service Well, I think it's it's obvious that um the rural health clinic is gonna provide access in rural areas to health care that if we didn't have the rural health clinics program it would not those folks would not have access to health care i mean there's a doctor's office about five minutes from my office, I can go knock out a a visit during the middle of lunch, take no time off of work and get a checkup or get a prescription or or whatever. And in rural areas, the the further you have to drive, uh, the more time out of the day just to go do a simple primary care visit means that you're less likely to do that. You're less likely to address things, you know, early on, right? Because primary care is really the first line of um, defense in, in healthcare, right? Um, other than preventive stuff and healthy living. But whenever you have an issue, you want to, you know, have a primary care visit. So first and foremost, it, it provides access, right? But the thing that I like to emphasize is that it's not just access for Medicare or for Medicaid, it, that's, it's access for the whole community, Right? So without these programs um, that provide special Medicare reimbursement and Medicaid reimbursement, you can't really sustain a clinician um, in many of these communities. And if that clinician leaves, everyone in that community loses you know access to a primary care doctor, not just the Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries.
0: So if a private practice was interested in becoming a rural health clinic, what steps would they need to take?
1: There's a, a, a decently long process. It's doable, but it's not um, anything to laugh at. There is a, it's, we call it a survey and certification process. And there are you know several federal requirements. Some states have licensure requirements, but not every state but there are certain federal requirements that you must meet. Um, Perhaps the most significant ones are at least 50% of the care that your office provides must be classified as primary care, and then at least 50% of the time that your office is open uh, you have to have a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner on, on staff, right? So there can, there is no rural health clinic in the country that's only a doctor, only an MD. They all must have a PA or NP there at least 50% of the time. And that kind of goes back to the, um, when the rural health clinic st- statute was first signed into law. One of the uh, goals was basically to say, well, maybe these rural areas can't support a full-time clinician, but we have all these really qualified health professionals that are PAs or nurse practitioners, and maybe that town can use a PA or NP. So it was sort of a, a way to incentivize the use and the growth of those professions.
0: Now, is the process any different for a hospital that wanted to convert its clinics into an RHC? Are there different hoops you have to jump through?
1: They have to jump through all the same hoops. And then there are a few more hoops in terms of um, attaining provider-based status um, that you do have to jump through. I'm not as familiar with the uh, provider-based loops, although I do know that they're not – I I don't get a lot of questions about them, so I – Imagine they're um, not as onerous or a little easier than the the basic the base rural health clinic requirements. And, and just if I could elaborate on the survey process, sure. there's there. So one of the big the other issues that we see is that it can take a really long time to get that RHC status. Um, just the amount of bureaucracy and red tape. Can be be, uh, overwhelming in some cases. So, there in every state there is an option to do the survey for free. However, the government does not necessarily prioritize rural health clinics in terms of their uh, manpower. In terms of when they where they send their surveyors, they send them to all these other facility types ahead of rural health clinics. They have like, I think, four or five different levels. And rural health clinics are are either four or five in terms of priority. So it can take a really long time for a surveyor to show up after you've requested one to come. So they've created, uh, there's two accreditation organizations. That will do rural health clinic sur- uh, survey and certification. There's these are the only two, so it's not like I'm leaving people out. It's Quad A and the compliance team. Uh, quad A is A A A A F, four A's and an F. Um, and I'm not gonna know what that uh, abbreviation stands for, in the pr- the proper order of the A's I'm not gonna get. But Quad A, if you Google Quad A, that's what it'll it'll take you there. And then the compliance team, those accreditation companies can come in faster. So if a clinic is looking for, uh, a, a th- wants to get up and running as a rural health clinic at a faster rate, that that's an option. Of course, those cost money, whereas the survey is free.
0: Now, when you talk about the survey, this isn't some, like a one-page form where you check yes and no on a bunch of questions, right? This is a how involved is this process?
1: Uh, it's it's pretty involved. Um, it's not a survey where, yeah, you check guesses and no's. It's a survey where a surveyor comes to on-site and asks to see things. And you have to have all everything in order or else you don't get the, the certification. And there's the initial survey, which you request and then you have to pass. But then after you've Become a rural health clinic. You you can be resurveyed, and you are supposed to be resurveyed every couple of years. So it sort of keeps everyone on their toes. At any existing rural health clinic, at any time, a surveyor could just really show up and say, "Hey, my name's Nathan. I'm here for the survey, and you have to be ready." Right. So it's a way to make sure that you're complying with those additional rules and regulations. In order to get the the different reimbursement they that's, that's how they do compliance
0: so sometimes it's kind of hard to show up at rural communities unlike it is maybe in urban areas, but you know thinking about what you said about you know you have a clinic maybe five minutes away, and you can go whatever you need to, and your office is in Alexandria, Virginia, but you're representing rural health clinics from all over the country. How do you stay in touch with what's going on? on the ground with rural health clinics.
1: Um well we try I, I, I admittedly I am I've never lived full time in a rural area. Um so that was a, a piece when I first started this job back in um, April of twenty fifteen. That was one of the things that we decided that I, I, I should go out to rural areas and visit with um Clinics in their environment, and so I've had the opportunity to go on a few site visits. I did one in Louisiana, and I saw a couple of clinics there, really small rural health clinics. Um, and then I also have recent, more recently, went to uh, some rural health clinics in Kentucky. Um, But we, you know, we, we have a lot of conferences and I go to a lot of state conferences. And that's a a chance for me to interface with, uh, rural health clinic staff, office managers, clinicians, things like that. And, um, you know, we try to be a member driven organization. We try to ask our membership. And then they tell us what issues are important to them. We have various committees that sort of send messages up the grapevine. So, um, that's, that's how we try to stay in touch with our members and the broader rural health community is just by staying active in all the rural health conferences, which are, there are a lot. Um, and we have our, our two of our own conferences every year. One, the, there's a one in the, uh, spring that's always in san antonio and then we have a fall conference that rotates between the west and the east every every other year
0: okay so you talked about you know being in touch with the members and figuring out what their issues are what do you feel are the most pressing policy issues for rural health clinics at this time
1: as, as we've already discussed it's it's 100 percent our payment issues the cap um these, there are clinics that are just getting hammered. And, and to give you some context, the cap is currently $83 for a primary care or for any sort of visit. And that's our all inclusive rate. So that's everything that the clinic does, $83. And this is Medicare, right? Um, that is just has not aged well, that cap figure has has never really been updated. And we are looking at a scenario in a couple of years where the fee for service offices will just be getting paid more under Medicare. Um, that's particularly in 2020 as it's currently scheduled, they're going to collapse the what we call the Evaluation and Management Codes, or aka the payment for a basic office visit, is potentially in 2020 going to be higher on the fee-for-service side than our capped Royal Health Clinics. So at that point, there's no reason to be a Royal Health Clinic anymore. Why go through all that survey stuff that I, to- that I was explaining earlier you already get paid more from medicare if you're a fee-for-service clinic versus a capped rural health clinic so we have a sense of urgency on the cap to fix that um because we don't want that model to die um now of course we have the clinics that are owned by small rural hospitals those with less than 50 beds they have they are getting better reimbursement currently um and we you know we want to protect that, and their issues are a little different there we're focused more on I mean these are issues that apply to all rural health clinics, but because their Medicare payment is already um, I would say fair, then they have regulatory reduction issues that we're looking at, um, how to expand telehealth into rural health clinics, uh, how to incorporate quality. Into rural health clinics. One of the big pushes from DC uh, for the last several years now is really the buzzword of quality and the buzzword of value. And everybody talks about, quote, innovative models, right? Well, all of those models are being designed for fee for service offices. They are. Designed with that in mind from the get go, different payment system, different circumstances. And we're really worried about the long term implications of okay, once they figure out what they want to do in terms of the fee for service world, how are they going to translate that over to rural health clinics who use different forms for billing? They have a completely different payment structure. How is that all going to translate over? That's, a, I think, a long-term challenge that we are, um, you know, trying to stay vigilant on.
0: So how do you help our elected officials understand those issues? How do you bridge the gap between the clinics and our politicians?
1: Well, it's, it can't all be me. I mean, I, me and Bill uh do our best to get in front of congressional staff and members as much as we can but the truth of the matter is that our power we don't we don't really donate a lot of money uh really at all in DC. So our power comes from our constituents, or our, and by that I mean our rural health clinics, right? So we can offer them a constituency group that is valuable to the members. So while Bill and I are happy to get in front of them here in DC, we try to um, encourage rural health clinics themselves to have a relationship with their Elected officials, and it doesn't necessarily always mean you have to have a a, an ask for any meeting. Invite your elected officials to any sort of ribbon cutting ceremony or uh, tours. Uh, Their elected officials are always happy to, you know, go on like learning tours. And if they can't come, their staff will come and building the relationships with the staff is almost as just as important as building a relationship with the elected official themselves. So it's gotta be a joint effort. We, um, you know, we, we try to do uh, tactical and strategic, uh, sort of, uh, advocacy efforts. If there's an issue that's particularly pressing that we think Congress can help us solve, we will ask the, uh, our membership in the Royal Health Clinics community to reach out and write about a certain thing that we need, think needs to be fixed. Um, so we do sort of smart, grassroots sort of email blitzes or, or communication blitzes around targeted areas, but we try not to over-utilize that um, because, as we all know, we're swamped with notifications in today's world, and we don't want our like a consistent sort of every week message, just getting tossed in the trash. We try to hold off and, and make sure that whenever we do do our big sort of um, campaign and pushes that it's meaningful and it has, a, it has an outcome that we want.
0: All right. And if you personally could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America?
1: Well, don't want to harp on the cap too much, but Obviously, the cap is our, uh, would be first and foremost. If I could wave a wand, I would have the Medicare reimbursement issue fixed. Uh, I think that the next, but beyond that, I think that really, um, looking into where healthcare is headed, uh, we don't, again, we don't know how quality and value, uh, Based payments are going to work in the long run. We have some ideas, but then um, there's a, a big law called MACRA that was passed back in 2015, which is basically how the government is trying to incentivize better care through Medicare reimbursement from clinicians and doctors. And there has been a million and one changes from 2015 to 2018. Um, the way the law was originally designed and, and how it's being implemented. There's all these tweaks. It's gone from being what appeared to be a mandatory program to a largely optional program. The way the scoring works has been dramatically tweaked. So we're really still, I would, I would say in the tinkering phase of how quality is going to look like. And this is all not applicable to rural health clinics, right? So I think um, the long-term challenge, though, is once that settles down and we exit out of that tinkering phase and the quality uh, payments and incentives really start to take hold in the fee-for-service setting, translating that into the rural health clinic setting, I would want to do that in a fair way. Uh, I don't have all the solutions on, on the top of my head, but certainly making sure that rural health clinics don't get hit with unfair standards that urban centers can easily comply with or urban clinics can easily comply with. But rural health clinics are going to suffer uh, if those same standards are applied. That's That would be my, I don't know, my if I could snap my fingers long term, I would want to ensure that the value-based payments, when they come to rural health, that they work for rural health, and it does not lead to closures of rural health clinics. So I, that's it's maybe a, a cop-out of an answer, but uh, that, I think that's my big concern. And, and if I could snap my fingers and you put me in charge of it, I would do whenever that quality came to rural health clinics and to rural health, I would make sure that it did not lead to loss of access to healthcare in rural areas. That that would be my...
0: All right. Well, thank you, Nathan.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be on the podcast.
0: That's Nathan Baugh, Director of Government Affairs, National Association of Rural Health Clinics, advocating for a payment structure that allows rural health clinics to remain vital parts of their communities. VRHA will be hosting a summit for rural health clinics on April 17th and 18th. Send an email to podcast at VRHA.org for details. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.